This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Welcome to the TriDot Podcast, everybody. Uh, on our last episode, we hosted just a quality conversation with the ladies uh, about female athlete considerations for training and nutrition. Today, it's the men's turn to learn all the nuances of nutritional and hormonal health for us to consider. Our key guide for this talk is our resident nutritional expert, Dr. Krista Austin. Krista is an exercise physiologist and nutritionist who consulted with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the English Institute of Sport. She has a PhD in exercise physiology and sports nutrition, a master's degree in exercise physiology, and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Krista, thanks so much for uh, coming on back-to-back weeks now. Thanks for having me, Andrew, and I'm excited about this one because we're actually going to talk about the guys this time, which I think is much needed. Also joining us is, now this is a new name for our podcast, uh, but certainly not for folks connected to the endurance sports industry, uh, triathlete Matt Bach. Matt is the director of endurance athletics for UCAN. He is an accomplished athlete with an Ironman Maryland victory and 72nd overall finish in Kona on his resume. Matt earned his MBA from Temple University and worked on Wall Street as a trader for nine years before making the move to working for UCAN full-time. And Matt, we are so happy you're here. Uh, the the TriDot team and the UCAN team have a great relationship. Uh, but Matt, it's your first time on the podcast. How are you feeling? Great. I'm excited to finally be on here. It's been uh, fun just you know interacting with all of you and the, the team over at TriDot and with Krista over the years too. So um, it's uh, really an honor to be on here. It's going to be great today. And who am I? I am your host, Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people and captain of the middle of the pack. Today, we'll get going with our warm-up question before moving on to our main set conversation about the specific health and nutrition needs of men. Then we'll cool down with some You Can Insider information from Matt Bach. It's going to be a great show. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. One of my first ever triathlons was a local sprint in October in 2014 called the Monster Try. Being called the Monster Try and occurring in late October, naturally, costumes were encouraged. And I fondly remember being passed at one point by a guy in a full-on plush penguin costume. At the time of this podcast, first airs October is just around the corner, which made me think of all the 5Ks, marathons, and local tries that will inevitably encourage athletes to costume up. So Krista, Matt, for today's warm-up question, what costume would you choose to rock if racing a Halloween-themed race? And Matt, it's your first time on, so I will start with you. <laughs> well, I think I would draw from one that I've actually raced in already, which is uh, is Peach from Mario. 
Really? So not Peach the Fruit, Peach the Mario uh, Princess. Yeah. So I, I, I once did a race. Uh, it was actually in the winter, so it wasn't even a Halloween race. But for whatever reason, I don't even remember the reason, people were dressing up. And I decided, um, well, my wife and I decided to do this <laughs> race. And we had a Mario costume and we had a Peach costume. And we we're like, okay, well, let's suit up. And then we we're like, wait a minute. Why should I be Mario? Why should you be Peach? Let's switch it. Let's just, you know, be a little wacky. Oh my so gosh, she that's dressed hilarious. up as Mario and I dressed up as Peach in a full-on dress for, uh, I think it was a, a couple of two miles or something. What, uh, what, what, what kind of looks did you get from fellow racers on course dressed up as uh, Peach? Oh, a lot of looks. I even had a wand and I held the wand up. I looked quite fabulous. Matt, do you have a picture of this? <laughs> I do. I, I might have to send that to you so you can include it. Please do, because we we will. I, I will have uh, a, a coach Elizabeth James who who helps with our social media accounts. I will send this to Elizabeth, and I'm sure she will gladly uh, post uh, Matt Bach in a Princess Peach outfit uh, on, on the channel. So uh, I'm I, I'm super <laughs> glad I decided to ask this question while you were on because that's. That's that's a doozy of an answer right there, my friend. <laughs> Can't take yourself too seriously, right? Exactly. So, uh, Dr. Austin, uh, what would you choose to dress up as? Would you choose Princess Peach? No, I wouldn't choose Princess Peach. <laughs> um, I forgot about Princess Peach, actually. Um, so it's a good thing Matt, Matt reminded <laughs> us. Um, I would actually probably dress up like Wonder Woman. Nice. Yep, that's she solid. Was, she was a big hero for me when I was growing up. It was either that or strawberry shortcake. Okay. So <laughs> one or the other. What One of my first thoughts uh, in thinking about this question was I, I thought it'd be so funny, especially for, um, you know, for the triathletes out there who follow pro tour cycling, which Dr. Austin, I know you do. Uh, I thought it'd be funny to um, go as Chris Froome, uh, but particularly thinking back to the occasion where, you know, he, I, 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 one of the Tour de France stages a few years ago where, uh, you know, he, he was in a wreck. Um, he, he, right at the end of a stage, his, his bike was not rideable and the finish line was right there. There wasn't a support vehicle in sight. And so he ran famously, you know, the, the last, uh, couple hundred feet to the finish line of a Tour de France stage. And so there's, there's famous images of Chris Froome in the yellow Jersey, uh, running down the road in his, uh, cycling cleats. And I was like, well, that'd be really funny because you could dress up as Chris Froome for all three stages of a triathlon and then run the run course in your bike shoes, uh, like Chris Froome. But we're going to put this out on social media, uh, alongside of the picture of Matt Bach dressed as Princess Peach. And we're going to ask you, our listeners, you know, what would you do? Uh, maybe like Matt, this is something you've already done. And, uh, you, you, you can chime in with a picture of yourself on the race course in costume, or maybe it's just something you're just now thinking of because I brought it up today. Uh, but we want to know from you, what do you want to rock if you had the costume up for a Halloween themed race? On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Our main set today is brought to you by our good friends at UCAN. Here at TriDot, we are huge believers in using UCAN to fuel our training and racing. In the crowded field of nutrition companies, what separates UCAN from the pack is the science behind their super starch, the key ingredient in UCAN products. While most energy powders are filled with sugar or stimulants that cause a spike or crash, UCAN energy powders, powered by super starch, deliver a steady release of complex carbs to give you stable blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy. UCAN also offers tasty and refreshing hydration mixes and energy bars for when you are on the go. When I was new to UCAN, my first purchase was their perfectly named Tri Starter Pack. 
It's the best way to discover what super starch powered you can products are best for you. So head to their website, generationucan.com, and use the code TRIDOT to save 15% on your entire order. The human body is a complex biological machine with a variety of inner working systems that can be affected by our food intake and training output. We want to balance both of these to fuel healthy training that makes us stronger athletes. Fueling improperly or training in unhealthy amounts can have huge biological consequences. And so today we are here to talk through all the considerations male athletes need to take in order to stay healthy. Uh, so, so Matt, Krista, as we dive into this conversation, um, I, I wanted to just, with Matt's first time on the podcast, kind of give everybody a quick introduction to who he is. Because Matt, I, I feel like you and I are kind of kindred spirits in a way. I was working in live television, you know, training for triathlon on the side. Uh, I became a big believer in TriDot, and, and now somehow I'm on staff talking about triathlon full-time for a living. Uh, you were working on Wall Street, training for triathlon on the side. You became a big believer in UCAN nutrition products, and then you made the jump to full-time UCAN staff talking about triathlon full-time. So tell us a little bit about just your journey as a triathlete and how it led you from Wall Street to UCAN. Yeah, that's a really interesting parallel. I didn't even really fully know the whole story on you, um, but fantastic. Uh, yeah, the, so my story, I started out as a runner, and then in tr 2010, I did my first triathlon. And um, I noticed that as I went longer in triathlon, I got better relative to the competition. So I went up from the sprint to the Olympic distance to the half Ironman distance in 2011 to the full Ironman distance in 2012. And I did Placid uh, my first time, and then I did Placid in Louisville and Kona in 2013. And in all four of those first Ironman events, I had nutritional problems. And while I was doing those Ironman events, I was working on Wall Street. Uh, so triathlon was, you know, was very much a hobby. And then those nutritional problems that I had in those first four events, it, I mean, what I mean by that is GI distress, I had bloating and stomach aches and, uh, you know, porta potty stops I didn't want to be making. Um, all sorts of bad things. And then because I'd have all those issues and the sugar overload, I'd stop taking in fuel. And then of course, lo and behold, 45 minutes later, I'm bonking and on the side of the road, joining the Ironman death march. And so it was very frustrating because I was going into these races really fit and ready to crush it, but I was being held back by nutrition. Yeah. So it was in 2014 that I finally said, all right, I'll put my foot down. I said, I'm done with this. Like I need to figure out a better way to figure this out and, you know, just get some nutrition stuff nailed down. So uh, reached out to a sports nutritionist and started working on uh, cleaning up my daily diet, but also started implementing UCAN into my approach, which I'd never heard of at the time. But um, my sports nutritionist recommended that I try it. And so I went out and I bought some, I trusted her, started using it, noticed that I had this kind of long lasting energy that the company was talking about. I noticed that on my longer workouts, I didn't have GI distress. Uh, and I noticed that I was looking forward to my next bottle of UCAN rather than dreading my fifth bottle of sugary sports drink or my seventh gel or whatever it might be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that was all good and good signs that this, you know, might be a successful thing. And and then at Ironman Maryland, about three and a half months later, this was in 2014. Uh, it was my first Ironman where I had no GI distress and no bonking issues and my first Ironman using UCAN. And I was uh, able to actually run really strong off the bike, better, you know, much, much, much closer to my potential. I ran 20 minute PR, three flat off the bike, went eight hours and 51 minutes, which was a 51 minute PR for me. And I went, uh, and I ended up winning the race, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, winning Ironman Maryland. And not so that not was, winning age group, like 
you won out of everybody. Yeah, had an overall win. Uh, right? yeah, over, overall win. That was, that was the first Ironman race that had uh, no pro field, um, but it was it was an overall win against against the field with a huge PR with no GI distress, and that for me was this big, big, big epiphany moment uh, where you know I was like, hey, why, why doesn't everybody know about UCAN if it can do <laughs> this for me? Like, why isn't everybody already using it? Especially because there's so many people out there suffering with GI distress and suffering with low energy and bonking issues on the course like what you know this is uh it's kind of mind-blowing to me that they're not at least giving it a shot um so yeah that's kind of how i came to UCAN. and then after that the company brought me on as a sponsored athlete uh for three years which was fantastic and i was just overjoyed to be able to spread the word about the company and about the products because i believed so much in them and still do uh and then last january is when they brought me on full-time to lead the charge and in, in spreading awareness and education of UCAN in the triathlon world which since uh, since then, they've expanded my role to encompass endurance, uh, encompass running and cycling and all that as well. So uh, I'm the director of the endurance business now. So that's my journey. Well, we are all for it. Uh, it's no secret that, uh, you know, myself and Elizabeth and Jeff Rains and, and many of us on the uh, the, the team and on the podcast uh, love you can and use you can. So uh, excited to have you with us today. Um, so, so Matt, Krista, you know, we're here today to talk about men's health. Um, and it's really become a greater focus, um, over just the last 10 years. Um, you know, but, but really kind of thinking back to last week's conversation, um, this started really over 30 years ago when there was a, an equivocal focus on women's health is when men's health was starting to really get studied. Dr. Austin, why is that? And what finally made it okay to talk about some of the things we're going to discuss today? You know, it was one of those things where, you know, I guess just in the field of health and looking, you know, at what we believe people should be capable of, that men were kind of put on this pedestal, and I'm not trying to be sexist in, in any of this, and they were put up there and said they should, they should look a certain way, um, they should be this, you know, lean, mean machine. It was, you know, how we perceived men. And we wanted to portray a certain image about men that I think just at the time was this was okay. And for some reason, a huge gender bias was put out there. And they just said, well, we're just not going to study it. We really don't have an interest in it. But then over the last 10 years, as we've delved into this whole concept of what is known as REDS, so Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome, what researchers started to find was that, you know what, this isn't just something that women experience. In fact, this is something that males experience too, but how do we know if they have it? And oftentimes, for many men, one of the reasons we have not looked at it closely is because when you start to look at the clinical signs, it means we're going to talk about topics that men usually don't like to bring up. And they go, why do you want to ask me some of these questions? What does this have to do with my, yeah. you know, endurance yeah. performance, my triathlon performance? And it's like, well, it has something to do with it because it's about how well you fuel your body and how hard you're training. And so I would say really it's the last five years and even the last couple years, really, that we have this much greater understanding because the research has now been done in men to show that they too can suffer from low energy availability um, and that they're now included in our statements with regards to REDS. So last week on our women's health episode, we talked a lot about REDS, uh, you know, but, but since it's at the core of both of these conversations, you know, for, for both women's and men's health, 
um, kind of catch our guys up to speed. What What is REDS and what all does it entail? So REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome. And in females, we characterize that by a caloric intake of less than 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, you know, muscle mass. And I just want to admit to the guys that we are using the female reference range still to understand your level of RETS. So it just kind of gives you an idea um, of how far we still need to go in this area. But relative energy deficiency also considers, you know, not just energy intake, but how much your carbohydrates are actually available to your body. So if you have low carbohydrate availability, you can have REDS. It also includes low bone density, a reduced resting metabolic rate, low testosterone, and even disordered eating, which oftentimes, you know, most people would say, oh, well, guys don't have that, right? Um, but what we have learned is that we also have to acknowledge that in men and that even they can have a very unhealthy psychological perspective of their body weight and composition, and that even given the fact that they are males, they may be carrying an excessive training load that is contributing to them having REDS. It's so interesting to me that that this didn't really get studied or looked at until scientists you know, started looking at women endurance athletes because they, they thought that women endurance athletes you know, might be prone to some health issues due to the training, but they just assumed that male endurance athletes were fine and could handle the training. And, and, and so we're just now kind of starting to look at this. So, so when did the concept of REDS and low testosterone in male athletes first get brought to the forefront? It first got bought, brought to the forefront actually 35 years ago by the, I would say, the best researcher in this area, Dr. Uh, Hackney. Um, and a recent tweet, um, he actually talked about the fact that he and Dr. Sue McConney talked about low T in male athletes over 35 years ago. Um, and they talked about the potential causes of it, including energy intake versus energy expenditure. But when they gave the information to the audience, he says it was just crickets. And by crickets, what he means is that there just wasn't any interest. Mm. It was just, he said it was total silence. They covered it really well. They know they covered it as well as they did the females. And it was just that no one really wanted to have any interest in it. And so it went to kind of to the wayside. He continued with his research. He continued to document both males and females and gave us a lot of the insight that we have today. But it just wasn't brought to the forefront. I know for me, back in the day when I started with the United States Olympic Committee as an intern, our focus in the late 90s was really on the overtraining syndrome. Like we would measure both cortisol and testosterone in males and we didn't ever really think about this whole concept of REDS. I mean, overtraining can be a part of it, but we just said these guys must just be capable of working so hard, you know, they're overtraining. And we didn't think about what we thought of in women. And I will say this, that when I was getting my PhD, the entire focus that I had was completely on females. I mean, we weren't really thinking about the males like we should, even though I would be involved with sports where we were working both with the women and the men, and the women would show up and, you know, we had issues with their menstrual cycles, and that would always be readily highlighted, whereas conversely in the males, mm, yeah. I would have the coach come to me and he'd be like, 
the guys would be getting out of the van from, you know, wherever they went to train and practice. Maybe it's cross-country practice. And he's like, Krista, do you smell that? And I'd smell what he was smelling. And in fact, it was it was ammonia. <laughs> and he goes, what, what is that? Oh, so it wasn't just like sweat body odor. No. And, and, and I said, well, if it's ammonia, I said, which is I believe that's what I'm, you know, smelling. I said, then guys are breaking down muscle mass. I said, I said hmm. we probably need to check and see if your guys are eating well. And you remember you had a group of college guys. Their idea of prepping for training was to have a couple Pop-Tarts. They'd go do the yeah. run they were supposed to do. <laughs> and then they were across the street as soon as they showered, going to the burrito shop, the pizza shop, and they would eat. You know, I mean, they'd have the big old burrito from a, from a place like Moe's, and they'd get some chips and queso. Or they'd go over to the pizza shop and have these two gigantic slices of pizza. And while that's good, they love to eat, they weren't necessarily meeting their energy demands. And they weren't meeting their carbohydrate demands. And so I remember that even for myself when I was trying to get my PhD and had such a huge focus um, on women's health as part of it. We just really didn't, you know, pay attention to the signs we were getting from the males at that point in time. And it would really be about you know, eight years after I started in the field that I would have my first male athlete with reduced bone density in his pelvis. And I would kind of sit back and say, what caused this? And you begin to realize that even the male athletes, especially male endurance athletes, could have reds. And back then we, we actually just used to refer to everything as the female athlete triad, which consisted of low bone density. And so all of a sudden you had a male in front of you that also had it. Um, and it just wasn't something we focused on. They're guys. They love to eat. They must be fine. Yeah. So, so Matt, you have firsthand experience with much of what Dr. Austin kind of just went over, you know, from reds to low T, overtraining, underfueling. You know, so walk us through your story and, and how your career has been affected. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and first, I just want to say that's some really interesting color that uh, that Krista just shared on how this all kind of came about. What you know, why for so many decades, many people aren't aware of this, and even today, so many people aren't aware of it. I mean, I wasn't. Like I'll describe in a moment, in terms of my own story, I wasn't aware what was going on for many years, probably, uh, but definitely several months. I really couldn't figure it out because it's not something that's really spoken about. And something else there too, I think, is that a lot of um, guys just write off this kind of some of the symptoms of of Reds because they're just training hard and they're like, oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm training hard. And so that's just what happens yeah. or whatever. But with women, if they lose their menstrual cycle, they lose their period, then they know it's very obvious that something is up, something's wrong. Um, for men, we don't have that. So it's not as obvious. It's not as apparent. And so, so many of the, so many of the symptoms uh, that you might experience could be related to overtraining. So yeah, my, my own story, I definitely have some personal experience here. Uh, just looking retroactively, I were looking like way back, I feel like back in high school, I was probably under knowingly under or unknowingly under fueling uh, while on the cross country and track teams. I know for lunch, a lot of the time I would eat very little because I knew that if I ate a bigger meal at lunch, that I would have it sitting heavy in my stomach, uh, you know, three, four hours later at practice. And so I would often eat very, very light lunches. And then I would come home and I'd eat a whole bunch. So when Krista was just mentioning like after practice, he'd think over and eat a whole bunch of burritos like that. Totally. <laughs> I could totally relate to that. Uh, but I was still likely under fueling at that time. And, and I did I had no idea that I was under fueling. I mean, the only hint that I had was one friend did mention to me 
saying, oh, you need to make sure you eat a proper lunch or otherwise you might, you know, you might not get better as fast as you want to get. You need fuel to, you need food to, you know, kind of fuel you as you improve and you need that to recover. And, and I kind of just, you know, fluffed it off or whatever at the time. But looking back, you know, it was, he was right. He had, he had a good point. So then when in 2011, so many, many years later <laughs> from high school throughout, uh, you know, that was the first thing. But then years, years later in 2011, uh, I began training at a high level in triathlon and 2012 continued through 2015 and 2016. Uh, in 2012 to 2014, I think I experienced some symptoms of reds, but I didn't know it. I had no clue. Mm. And I think I had some fatigue and low libido. And like I said, I just kind of wrote it off to that hard training and only really realized that in hindsight. But when I really started experiencing it was in March of 2015. I had some unexplainably real fatigue and low libido in March of 2015 that I, it's what precipitated me, um, to start looking into it further and figuring out what is actually going on here. Uh, cause it just, I was like, Hey, I'm 20 at the time I was 29 years old. I'm like, there's no way I should be having these libido issues. Uh, and this fatigue, you, you could tell there was a problem at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'd be coming home from the train and, uh, I, I, I on the train from, from New York city because I was working on wall street and I'd, I'd be getting off the train and I'd feel so, so sluggish, but I'd have a hill workout to do that evening. And I just, I could barely get myself to stand up and get off the train in time before the door, the doors closed back up again. Wow. I was so fatigued. It was really, really weird. So I, for a while, I just wrote it off, but I, I finally just couldn't do that anymore. I had to figure out what was up. Um, and in March of 2015, I was, it was right around the time when I was sort of making a, a dedicated push to try to become even leaner. Uh, I was already, you know, maybe 148 um, pounds. I'm just right around six feet tall. Uh, so already quite lean, but I was trying to make this like extra push to become even just a couple pounds lighter as I was prepping for Kona in 2015. And so I think that kind of what is what precipitated me to um, have these these symptoms rise to the surface in a bigger, bigger way. Uh, so then it was in uh, the next few months from March through August, I was researching and trying to figure out what was going on. I tripped upon Cody Beals's blog. He's a pro triathlete that many of you may be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a very transparent guy like me. He's experienced issues like this and he wrote about it in one of his blogs. And so I read that and I was like, wow, this sounds very, very similar to what's going on with me. And so finally I, I realized and that was the first time that you read anything like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up to that point, I really just, I didn't know what was going on. I, I just didn't know. Um, so when I read his blog, it was really eye opening. And it sounded so much like what was going on in, in with me that I had to figure, get to the bottom of it. And so I went and saw my doctor. I had blood work done for the first time in 2000, August of 2015. And this is when I had my, my testosterone levels tested for the very first time. I had to ask the doctor to have the testosterone levels checked and he wouldn't really agree right away. And I had to continue to urge him that wow. this should be done because I think there's something going on here between endurance training. And he had no idea that there was a link between endurance training and possibly underfueling. Uh, and low testosterone or hormone disturbances or reds, like he he really just didn't know anything about it. I mean, that said, he's he was like a you know a, your primary care physician, so he doesn't really have a depth, yeah. a depth of knowledge in a lot of areas. So I was like, okay, you know, I just need this work done, <laughs> this blood work done, just to check, right? <laughs> and he eventually agreed. He's like, all right, let's do it. He tested it. I had one fifty three total testosterone for reference. Normal is between three hundred and a thousand, and average oh, for wow. somebody at twenty a male who's twenty nine years old is like six hundred and fifty ish, give or take. So I was okay. pretty severely low and typically symptoms start to appear for people at something like 300 or under. I mean, it's different for everybody, but for me, 
uh, that seems to be about right too. Um, so I was obviously experiencing those symptoms and I obviously had low testosterone. He, my primary care physician didn't even believe it. So he had me retest, I think three days later, uh, made sure that all the conditions were optimal for high testosterone levels. And I came back, uh, I think it was almost identical, the number. Okay. And so then he was, he, his eyes were open to the fact that this could actually happen. Uh, and then I did Conats two months later in October of 2015. I still, I placed 72nd overall. My training was still great. I was still hitting the numbers. So performance-wise, I wasn't really having a massive detriment, but I felt pretty terrible. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's incredible that you had that kind of a result at Kona, uh, you know, just knowing and considering what your low testosterone levels were. So, so once you were through kind of the dance on the big island, you know, what did you do to kind of get your health right again? Yeah, um, my, my decision prior to Kona was, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, keep this in the back of my mind that this is going on and I'll try to not overtrain and try to make sure that I am eating enough. So I did pack on a couple extra pounds. But I wanted to remain very lean and very strong and very everything, you know, well-trained going into Kona because it was only two months away. I'd already been dealing with it for several months or even years. So I might as well just stick it out yeah. here and see how well I can do in Kona and then figure this out, like really get to the bottom of it. And so after Kona, I stopped training completely for about a month. I reached out to an endocrinologist who, I mean, an endocrinologist specializes in hormones. So I figured immediately, like they will definitely know about the link between endurance training and under fueling and, and low testosterone, uh, and be familiar with reds. So she knew nothing about it. Wow. Again, I was completely shocked that she knew nothing about it. And she just wanted to, I mean, I think that her clientele is typically, you know, guys in their fifties, sixties and seventies who, um, come to her looking for exogenous testosterone. Um, and it might be because of how they feel, or it might be because she, she had never encountered, a, an elite athlete. At I don't think so. Old. I don't think so. And so I told her, you know, testosterone is banned by WADA and USADA. It's a performance enhancing drug. I said, I can't do that. I'm, I need natural methods to restore my testosterone levels. I'm not going to, um, take the, you know, exogenous testosterone, um, uh, because it's banned. So she, I said, this is, the constraint that I'm working in, can you help me with some natural methods? And she really didn't know of any natural wow. methods. So I left and I didn't call her back again. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I moved on. <laughs> uh, so that's when I linked up. And just so you know, Matt, mm -hmm. just so you know, Matt, that's actually really common, wow. even if you're a female. Uh -huh. So what you experienced is, is, is not unusual. Endocrinologists are used to an older population and they're not used to a young man or a young woman walking in and saying, I may have reds or I can't take, or I don't want to take exogenous sex steroids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And absolutely. That's a good point. It is really pretty common. And I think it, it must all come back to the fact that there's a huge demand market demand for older gentlemen who want uh, help with their testosterone levels. But it's still pretty rare that you have a 29-year-old walking in with low testosterone. Yeah. Like the, uh, but I, I was still a little bit surprised, though, that as an <laughs> endocrinologist, maybe she wasn't keeping up with the research or what was going on out there to not even know that it, you know, it existed. Like maybe she hadn't really worked with people like me before, but I figured maybe she'd at least kind of know that it was possible. Um, so that surprised me. That was eye-opening. So, Matt, what did you, when you went to her and, and she couldn't really help you, you know, what, where did you go from there? Yeah, then I, I ended up getting linked up with Dr. Ruth Johnson in New York City, and she helped me to use natural methods to recover from the low T. Um, so she knew of the condition. She knew about REDS. She knew about it in the female on the female side of things, and she had worked also with some males. And Dr. Ruth Johnson is an internist, so she works with 
she's you know very good with blood markers and very good with supplementation, natural supplementation uh, to help you know live a healthier life. And so she was encouraging me to sleep more, to train less, to eat more, to bring up my higher uh, body fat percentage to higher levels, and prescribed a number of different natural supplements that I could take that might help. Uh, the verdict is very much out on whether those supplements do anything or not. Okay. But I figured for for the most part. Uh, it wasn't going to hurt to take them. Uh, for, for instance, something like uh, taking a relatively low dose of zinc, uh, from what I understand, might help with testosterone levels. It completely might not. It hasn't really been proven out in the science. But as long as you're taking a relatively low dose of it, there's not really any harm that can be done there. Uh, and we it, were yeah. monitoring my blood markers to see if my zinc levels were going to go too high, in which case I think it could be detrimental. But my new zinc levels, zinc levels never went up very high. And the same thing is with strength training. I, I picked up a lot more strength training and lifting heavier weights because it might help. But again, I mean, the Krista would know this way better than I would, but these types of things, they might help, but the science is still very much not solid uh, that, that it does. It hasn't really been able to prove it, but I figured, hey, it couldn't hurt. I might as well do some strength training. Uh, and then it was in 2016, early 2016, that I discovered I had a stress reaction, which is a precursor to a stress fracture in my femoral neck on my right leg. And that's a big bone. It's not supposed to have stress fractures or stress reactions very easily. Yeah. But Dr. Sylvia Hessa, who's an orthopedic doctor, put the pieces together. She knew about my story of low testosterone. Uh, she knew that I had the stress reaction in my femur. That's why I went to her. And she figured I might have low bone density. And again, she was another doctor that was actually aware of REDS and aware that this could exist in males. So she put the pieces together and she had me do a DEXA scan and it confirmed that I had low bone density and still do uh, to, to some degree. I have osteopenia. At the time, I had a Z-score of negative 2.0, which is pretty low. And that's why the activity, the running that I was doing was uh, causing the stress reaction is because my bone density was very low. Okay. I was actually on crutches for several months recovering from that. Wow. When I learned that, I completely pulled the plug on, plug on my endurance training. I uh, kept doing strength work. Yeah, no kidding. Once I could, once I recovered from the stress reaction, but uh, it was really scary. I was like, okay, you know, one thing is fatigue and low libido. You can kind of deal with that for a little while, and you know, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be too terrible. But when it comes to bone density, if I crush myself and impair my bone density now when I'm 29, 30 years old, what am, what are my bones going to look like when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old? Am I going to be, yeah, uh, you know, crippled when I'm? I can't, can I even walk around? So I was really, really concerned. And that was the impetus for me to just do nothing for a while. And over the many months after that, I was able to get my T levels to return to normal. Uh, I'm, I'm now smack in the middle of normal. It took me maybe, oh, geez, maybe six months to a year before I was able to fully return to normal asymptomatic um, uh, state and, and resume some endurance training without feeling like I was going to just dive back that, down that rabbit hole. Yeah, well, we're we're thrilled to hear uh, about your progress, and um, you know I, I know and admire you know how much you're able to kind of take your story and um, use it to um, let other guys know that this can be an issue. Because I, I know for me, again, giving Dr. Austin credit that I, I didn't even know that we needed this episode because I didn't know this was a problem. Um, you know, you you see on TV from time to time, you know, commercials for low T centers and low T, you know, take this pill for low T, you know, men. I'm former pro athlete so-and-so, and here's my low T, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I just always assumed that it was um, something for older men, uh, you know, older, uh, unathletic men that were dealing with this problem, and I had no idea that endurance sports and multi-sport um, could, could induce it or cause it in, in young men. So, 
you know, Matt, thanks so much for, for sharing your story. And, you know, Dr. Austin for Matt, you know, it was noticing high levels of fatigue and, and it was the eye-opening experience of reading, you know, pro triathlete Cody Beals and his experience that made him realize something wasn't quite right. You know, so, so what are some of the tough questions, um, that an athlete just has to ask themselves in order to understand whether they may or have reds or, or some other impact on their health? Yeah, so this is where guys typically get a little gun shy, just to be honest with you. And I think if Matt had known this, he probably could have said very early on uh, when it was occurring that something might be changing. And he talked about one of those factors, which is libido. Um, as young as he was, and you know, really until males are well into their 50s or what have you, their, their libido is pretty constant and it, it's relatively high. Um, the second thing that men need to pay attention to is their morning erections. Um, your frequency of those and you know, what is normal, maybe what is not as normal for you is something that you should take note of. And if men are married, I often tell their spouses, I said, you know, one of the biggest things you can pay attention to is, you know, how frequently does he have an interest in sex with you? And if you sit down and try to talk with guys about this topic, it's something that all of a sudden they blush, they turn red, they go, why is she <laughs> even going there? Like, Dr. Austin, I'm not that way, you know. Don't ask me that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's you also have to ask questions about, you know, when they do have sex, are they having any issues? And oftentimes, you know, for me, when young men come to me for a nutrition consult, it's because these days, at least, their coach has referred them because they don't know. They said, I don't know how I should look at this in my male athletes. And they're not comfortable asking their male athletes whether or not they're experiencing mm. any signs or symptoms of low energy availability or overtraining. And so they turn around to me and they go, I think they should do a nutrition consult with you. And typically for most males, I'll tell you, it is after a stress fracture. That's when the flag really does go up and most coaches will turn around and say, maybe we should do something about this. Yeah, no, and that, that tracks with Matt's story. Uh, exactly, that Matt, for you, that was a primary concern. It, it, it was really a red flag when you said, man, something could really happen with my bones. I don't want to mess with that. And that's, that's what's unfortunate, is that even with all of our knowledge today and the fact that you know, Dr. Hackney started documenting this over 35 years ago, it's still not something that we, you know, have learned to readily pay attention to in the male athlete or even in a male that undergoes maybe high levels of stress um, in which they need to be cognizant of how their body's reproductive system is actually functioning. So what are the primary concerns uh, for the health of a male athlete that, that we should be aware of uh, here with low T and REDS? Um, you know, they're very similar to the female. And first and foremost, it is your impact on your reproductive health. And we measure reproductive health, you know, based on the concentration usually of testosterone. And then if, you know, men are having issues, maybe helping their wives get pregnant or what have you, we take it a step further and, you know, look even more so at their, you know, sperm count, motility, quality of the sperm. But on a day-to-day -day basis, we just went over, you know, how do you know that your reproductive health is good? And that, that is your testosterone levels, it's libido, um, it's overall ability to have a healthy um, sexual, you know, life. 
Um, and then also just, you know, the, the morning erections in and of themselves gives men an indicator that I would say is about equivocal to a woman having her menstrual cycle and whether it's regularly there. The second part is just the impact on psychological health. When we have overtraining or low energy availability, our body typically has lower blood glucose levels, um, it's not as rusted, and we have hormones like cortisol and prolactin that become very elevated, and actually they're in part what inhibits the ability to actually produce that testosterone. And so, you know, we've talked about a little bit of this on the women's episode, but when we elevate our stress hormones, we then inhibit via prolactin the ability for a hormone known as luteinizing hormone to be pulsatile and to actually help us make mm. testosterone. And so oftentimes, because testosterone goes down and cortisol stays high, prolactin stays high, your sleep gets disrupted, your mood gets disrupted, and training starts to go downhill. And when training starts to go downhill and you're not performing, there's an even greater impact on a lot of men's psychological health because they're not able to achieve the goals they want to achieve in sport or life or, or whatever it actually is. And then the other thing... And they probably struggle to understand why. Oh, yeah. They're sitting there going, what's wrong with me, right? I mean, surely I yeah. don't have anything wrong with me. And, and you know, I've seen that years and years now where they go, I just didn't know anything was wrong until things went really wrong. Kind of like in Matt's case, you know, they're impacting their bone health and they really don't know it because oftentimes males, as they grow up, they develop a pretty significant bone density. I mean, they're usually very healthy and so it's hard to get those bones worn down enough to get the signal through a stress reaction or a stress fracture um, that says, hey, we are in fact doing harm. But at the end of the day, the risk for men are equivocal to the risk for women uh, with regards to reproductive health, bone health, and even their psychological health. One thing, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll chime in here with a little more feedback, a little more on my story that I didn't share before, is that on the reproductive health side of things, uh, my wife and I now have two wonderful, healthy children, two and three years old. But when these issues were going on, we were trying to have a family, and it took us about two years to have our daughter because we had many, many months where nothing happened, and we had two miscarriages. They were early on, uh, but mm. still brutal. Um, and and we didn't really know why. Uh, I ended up getting tested. She got tested. My tests, all of our tests came back normal. Um, but my testosterone had been low throughout that whole period. And then just so happens, maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's not. Uh, the month, pretty much right around the time when my testosterone levels naturally returned to normal is the month that Lauren, was, my wife, was pregnant with Summer, our daughter. And that was the one wow. that stuck, you know, quote unquote. So I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> it was just coincidence because these tests told me that everything was fine. Like, uh, yeah, I, so I don't know. It's um, I'll probably never know, but it very well could have been linked. Yeah, that, and that's the one that finally stuck and uh, some are still around today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Dr. Austin, as we learned last week, kind of in our conversation about women's health, um, that there's a distinguishment between low energy availability uh, and overtraining. Uh, but, but these are two things we, we need to know about and, and be on the lookout for in ourselves. Um, how does low energy availability occur and how is overtraining different? 
Yeah, so what we need to realize about low energy availability is that, you know, if we're on this typical, you know, 12 hour eating pattern that most people are and we go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, technically you are in a state of low energy availability. So that's usually why, you know, we like for people to have breakfast in the morning. But essentially low energy availability is a lack of appropriate energy intake for the calories that you're out burning between everyday life and training or it also can be defined by inadequate total carbohydrate intake. And the reason that's so important is that people need to realize that just because the total calories are there doesn't mean that you have the substrates necessary to help the body stay functioning. Um, and we've learned a lot about this area actually uh, from studies of Ranger School. Uh, the US Army has research that it's done over the years to study the men that go through Ranger School. And what they showed us is that even with what we call adequate energy intake, so it's just enough to sustain life and give us the you know, recommended daily allowance plus a little bit, is that when those men went through that rigorous school, they saw an elevation in their actual thyroid stimulating hormone. And that is the marker that we use to say is the thyroid, which is the organ in your body responsible for producing the hormone that helps give you energy, right? is it functioning normally? And then the other thing they documented was that those men had very, very low testosterone as they went through ranger school. And that has to do with the fact that because they didn't give them enough energy, their body registered via the thyroid that they were in a state of energy depletion, which then told that thyroid organ to tell the pituitary it needed to increase a stress hormone known as prolactin. And as I mentioned previously, prolactin actually is the hormone that will go in and inhibit luteinizing hormone and stop our sex organs from producing the sex steroids that we, we actually want and need them to. So that is a you know where our real knowledge of low energy availability comes from is the studies in men going through ranger school. And they also documented how well they could replete them after ranger school, which is several months versus you know kind of the several years. But you will hear of candidates going through that school and having bone related issues and things of that nature where they don't make it through that schoolhouse because of how hard it is to be in low energy availability. Um, but just so you know, just because you're going through all this and it doesn't mean that low energy availability is the only way that it can occur. You also brought up something known as overtraining and the difference between overtraining and low energy availability is that in the overtrained state, we're just managing an excessive training load in relation to our recovery. And in fact, our total energy intake usually matches our energy output. We're fueling our body well, but the stress we're placing on it, again, takes our hormonal system, elevates the stress hormones of cortisol and prolactin, and can go in and inhibit the pulsatility of luteinizing hormone. Typically, you know, athletes will kind of crash and burn a whole lot sooner underneath a method like this, at least from my experience, because they'll start to get the feedback that says, you know what, I'm not hitting the performance sets and training that I thought I could, what is actually going on? And so we'll call that usually overreaching and not full-blown overtraining. What's important to actually understand is that both of these states, whether it's low energy availability or overtraining, may or may not be intentional. And they may or may not be linked to um, an eating or body image disorder. 
In fact, for many athletes, and I think Matt highlighted this, it's usually a lack of knowledge and education early on in the years that they spend training in which they end up not having enough calories or the right macronutrients in their diet to actually uh, fuel their sport. And so they end up with low energy availability and accidentally impacting their body. Um, you know, when people do excessive training, such as overtraining, it can actually go in and inhibit appetite. And so like when they're young kids, kind of like Matt described, you'll go have a really hard workout, sit down, you know, mow down on this meal that you think is pretty significant and think you've done a good job. But in all reality, your appetite hasn't been strong enough to tell your body, mm. I want to go in and in fact, I need to go in and eat more. And so there are two different ways that we can, you know, end up harming our reproductive health, psychological health and bone health. And it's not always intentional. Sometimes it is. Some athletes, you know, will intentionally restrict food intake um, because they do have an eating disorder or a body image disorder. But we need to be cognizant that for many athletes, at least the ones I've worked with over the years, they just haven't been told early on enough, this is what you need to do to maintain your health and your overall, um, you know, bodily function, to be honest. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, when, when we're depleting ourselves of, of energy and when we're not taking in enough energy, you know, that, that our bodies can kind of almost betray us, you know, without our knowledge by, by not you know, cueing us to eat enough. And we can think that we're doing a good job. We can think that we're, you know, eating enough to, to satisfy ourselves when in all, actu all actuality, our body is in a, a depletion. Um, that, that, that's so fascinating. Um, Matt, when you think back to kind of those early days you mentioned, training for cross country and track and then getting competitive in triathlon back in 2011, you know, do you think that low energy availability or overtraining were big factors for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think both played a role for me. And I know that during, I think it was like 2012 to 2014, I don't think I had much of a low energy availability problem. I think it was probably more the over uh, overtraining, especially in 2013. I was kind of, I think I'm pretty sure I was overtraining to some degree. And so I think my, my T levels were maybe reduced to some degree, but I wasn't really experiencing strong symptoms yet until the other piece of the equation, the low energy availability came into play in 2015. Um, and that, that was really like, like I said, because of that push to be more lean. Um, I, and I was still eating a lot. I mean, relative to your average person, I mean, I was eating maybe like, I don't know, 3000, 3500 calories a day, but because of the huge amount of volume and, you know, training and stuff I was doing, I probably required something more like, you know, maybe it was 4000 or 4500 calories a day. And so I was running at this kind of chronic deficit that caused me maybe to have uh, the symptoms float to the top and start becoming prevalent. Um, and then, you know, once I figured out what was going on, I was able to fortunately um, just you know, take all those different measures to try to get things back in line uh, by eating more and uh, just packing on some extra weight and sleeping better and all that. So Matt, knowing what you know now and kind of being on the other side of it in, in hindsight, right? Um, you know, what, what do you wish that you could have done differently early on in your athletic career? Mm. Um, I mean, I wish I was aware, but I guess <laughs> what I would have done differently back then is that if I was aware, 
what I would have done differently is get blood work done. Okay. Absolutely get blood work done at various points throughout my life to test hormone levels like testosterone um, and a number of the other hormones that Krista mentioned. Because if you have a baseline when you're experiencing no problems, then at least you can always look back to that and say, okay, this is about what my normal is. Uh, and now I've embarked upon this big change in my training. Like, let's say I'm taking on an Ironman and I want to see how that impacts my blood markers. I mean, a lot of us get into this sport because we want to be healthier, uh, but there's such a thing as being fit and unhealthy. Yeah. And I was certainly that for a little while there, um, for sure. So if you can test your hormones and test all of your blood markers before you embark upon something, it might be a big diet change too. If somebody decides they want to go plant-based or if somebody wants to go uh, be fat adapted or take some sort of big approach. They want to do one of the, you know, sort of, um, you know, paleo or who knows what it is. So one of these diets that are out there before you do any of that, I would suggest uh, getting blood work done so that you can see what your baseline is. So that way you, you can see whatever that change, big change you're, you're making is what kind of impact it has on those blood markers and see if maybe you're falling into this case of, of reds. Dr. Austin for athletes listening who, who hear all this information and, and they just, you know, they, they, they want to check in on themselves and just see what state their bodies are in. Um, you know, how do you recommend assessing our current health? So for the males, I will tell you my first challenge to them, you know, is really to start tracking on their overall sexual health. You know, we talked about what that consists of earlier, but I think for so many men, that's kind of a, a challenge. So I'm going to put that out there and say, you know what, be honest with yourself and monitor that. Secondly, whenever I work with someone, you know, we take a good look at bone density because I know it's so possible for that to be impacted and do a very honest assessment of energy intake and expenditure. And, you know, I asked the athletes to do that because I said, you know, we need to know if we have any potential for harming your health because you're not fueling your body right. The other thing that I like for athletes to do is to always be monitoring their training load, not just the mechanical load, but also the cardiovascular load. And the cardiovascular load is very heavily tied to the endocrine system or the hormonal system uh, that Matt mentioned. And if we can tie that into your uh, biochemical profile, the hormonal profile that you know Matt talked so much about, that's also really great because then we know when possibly we're training too hard or not eating enough to impact that that profile. And then every once in a while, it's not always easy to get, we do make sure we do a resting metabolic rate test. You know, do they have a normalized RMR or is it slightly suppressed? Because that can also be an indicator uh, that they may have reds and that we need to take an additional look um, at what they have going on. And so I think it's just, you know, challenging the males to really take a look at these things and, and not blowing it off and making your physician aware that you are an athlete. You know, that's one of the biggest things that I often run into when, you know, I put a call in to their doctors and, you know, I say, hey, you know, we need your help and I've sent the athlete in and they go, oh, I didn't know that they were an athlete. I didn't know that they were training this much. Um, and usually it's a great learning experience for the physician as well. But I challenge everyone to make your doctor aware that you are a very active individual. And what does that mean for you? So if someone goes in um, to, to get their blood work done or, or to get any of these tests done that you both have mentioned, um, if our results come back uh, and we just have some abnormal results, you know, we have some levels that are off, 
um, you know, whether it's in our bone density or biochemical profile or our RMR, um, does that, is that an indication that we have REDS or overtraining? It can be an indication that we have it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. What we have to understand is that it is possible, even if you're young, to have an actual endocrine issue or have an actual hormonal issue. It may be genetic, um, it may be something that they were born with. And so we need to acknowledge that while we're gonna go check all the boxes on the training and nutrition side, we need the medical providers when they do see the alterations in bone density or biochemical profile to work with us to help sort through what is really going on. Do they actually need to see an endocrinologist to have um, any of those factors addressed? So we just have to be cognizant that people may have an endocrine issue if, even if they are young. And the older they, they get, the more likely they, they may have that as well. So with all the different bodily systems that can be affected by low testosterone, at what point do males require actual testosterone supplementation? So once you've had the opportunity to address the training and nutrition side, really you have to say if the testosterone is still low, you know, is it possible for the athlete to go pursue whether or not they do have low T because of the fact that they have actual hypogonadism? And, you know, we have seen this out there in males. Um, I don't know how prominent it is on the elite side of sport, but I know on the more recreational side, the age group side, especially as males mature, they will end up with actual hypogonadism. And at that point, it does need to be treated in order to maintain their health if that's what they wish to do, especially if they're having significant symptomology. And I think what's important when we talk about this area is that we say, okay, what is testosterone supplementation because they have low T versus kind of the you know image that we have in our heads when we hear testosterone oh, those are steroids, you know, that athlete's on steroids. And in all reality, um, that's not what, you know, the supplementation with testosterone is at that point when they truly have low T. Um, it's something that a physician may do to help maintain the health of their patient. And, you know, it's always possible to approach USADA and put in a therapeutic use exemption when they truly do have that issue and work through that process, uh, regardless of the level they want to compete at. I believe even elite athletes can do that. Um, I just don't think, you know, true hypogonadism is, is prevalent at that level. Um, so just know that you may come across a male athlete that truly does have hypogonadism. And we need to be conscious and considerate of that um, and respect the fact that they do need to be treated from a medical perspective. So before that is, is even necessary, um, Dr. Austin, what specifically would you recommend male athletes do to prevent any deterioration in health in the first place? I think it's to have the honest talk with yourself and in listening to a podcast like this, you know, Matt gave a lot of great indicators um, and educate yourself know what your training load is, know what overtraining means for you, know what your caloric intake versus output needs to be, and you know, make sure you are tracking on the factors that 
could put you at risk as an endurance athlete. You know, going and getting a Dexadun so you know your bone density, getting a biochemical profile and talking with your physician so that they know that you are an athlete and they will kind of put that little, you know, note in the back of their head when they're working with you that if they see something, whether it's excessively low heart rate or a significant drop in body weight, that they will turn around and say, hey, I have concerns possibly about your health let's talk a, a little bit further. And so I think that's one of the most preventative things you can do is to have someone externally like a medical physician who maybe doesn't live and breathe the sport to the extent you do, or maybe they are an active you know, athlete and they understand the sport that much better. But if they can give you that external objective perspective each year or two years, um, I think that's you know, one of the best things we can do to help ensure our health is maintained. Matt, just to kind of wrap up uh, our main set today, um, what would you want athletes listening today to learn from hearing your experience? And what are you doing differently in your endurance training now? Yeah, one main thing is regarding volume. So don't get, don't fall into the trap that how good you are at the sport is linearly related to the volume that you do. I fell into that trap early on. And what I mean by that is, say you're training three hours a week and you are at a certain level and then you train six hours a week and you get better and then you train nine hours a week and you get even better. And so you start thinking, oh, maybe all I need to do is just keep increasing the amount that I'm doing and I'm going to get better. But that you get diminishing returns on that. You know, you get up to 12 hours a week or 15 hours a week for everybody. It's different. And for everybody's lifestyle and, you know, the stresses that you have elsewhere, whether it be work or family or whatever it is, uh, everybody's sort of tipping point is different. For me, I found that once I got up to around maybe 12 to 15 hours a week, given my life and my genetics and all that, that was becoming a little bit too much. It was sort of, I was sort of plateauing at that point and I wasn't really getting any better. And then beyond that, I was getting even worse because I think I was overtraining and causing some of these, these problems with, with reds. Um, so remember that you, you want to have, and that's one of the reasons why I like TriDot so much. The whole philosophy there is that you've got yes. quality over quantity going on, right? You're, so you're still putting in volume and training, but you need to have that high quality training, the polarization of your training. So that way you can get better without just spending you know countless hours out there sort of not getting better. <laughs> Matt, I was going to say the same thing, and you 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 beat me to plugging TriDot before I could even you know beat you to plugging TriDot. So thanks for that. <laughs> Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. Well, it's our very first show with Matt Bach on as a guest, and hopefully, Matt, it certainly won't be the last. Um, Matt, I would just be remiss as a fan of UCAN and a fan of your team to walk away from our first episode with you and not hear a little bit more about what the crew at UCAN is up to these days. Following you guys on social media, there have just been some great educational and entertaining events um, that you guys have going down. So tell our athletes for just a second about some of the fun stuff you guys have been doing and, and where folks can go for more content from Jin UCAN. Yeah, we've had a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, back in June, Global Running Day was in early June, and we had Dave McGilvery, uh, the Boston Marathon race director, on the heels of the Boston Marathon cancellation on one of our panels. Uh, we had a panel a few weeks ago with Ryan Hall on this very topic that we were talking about today, along with a sports dietitian and a researcher who specializes in exercise-induced low testosterone. Uh, we also had panels during National Triathlon Week the last week of June, 
with some of the biggest names in triathlon, Mark Allen, Tim O'Donnell, Siri Lindley, Karen Smyers. Uh, we had some several discussions on improving diversity in the sport of triathlon. And you could follow us on Facebook and Instagram, follow you can at Jen, you can, uh, and you can join our mailing list at youcan.co If you want to be in a loop on these different events that we have ongoing all the time. Now, I'm looking forward to coming on again soon. Thanks again. Well, that's it for today, folks. I want to thank Dr. Krista Austin and Matt Bach from UCAN for talking about the specific nutrition needs of male athletes. Shout out to UCAN for partnering with us on today's episode. Just like Matt said, be sure to follow Jen UCAN on social media for more great endurance sports and nutrition content. Enjoying the podcast? Have any triathlon questions or topics you want to hear us talk about? Head to tridout.com slash podcast and click on submit feedback to let us know what you're thinking. We'll do it all again soon. Until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize your training? Head to TriDot.com and start your free trial today. TriDot, the obvious and automatic choice for triathlon training. <laughs>